This is Over the Culture Podcast, where you get to hear my spin on things I like, like music, sports, sports entertainment, movies, TV shows, and your mom. You also get to hear about things I don't like, like people who can't admit when they're wrong. And I'm your bastard of ceremonies, the one gig kid, Pat Stay Black, Alex Treblack, Lee for Sutherland, Luke Fly Talker, the most interesting lurk in podcasting, the troll of pros, the prince of petty, titty two phones, Steve G. Phone's ringing, dude. It's March 6, 2022. Happy 3-6 day. Down with the triple six mafia. And no, I'm not talking about Satan. I'm talking about Project Pat, DJ Paul, Juicy J, Lord Infamous, R.I.P., Crunchy Black, Gangsta Boo, LeChat, from North Memphis. Mafia? Yeah. Happy 3-6 day. So yesterday I was off on Saturday. And Tough Guy Tonio was there. Had his door open, and I figured this was the ripe opportunity for me to try to clear the air. And I had to let him know that I admit I was wrong. I handled that whole ordeal wrong. I was out of line. I fucked up. I dropped the ball. And I've had nothing but time. It's been some weeks. I had nothing but time to think about it. And it's definitely a lesson learned. Uh, I'm quick to jump to action. And as the old adage say, fools rush in. Fools rush in. So I had to eat crow for the ensuing weeks. I had to eat crow, ponder, listen to music. And my thoughts, my thoughts in music. And either way you look at it, up, down, left, right, side to side, I was wrong. And I told him I, I wanted to tell get this to you earlier, but I, I didn't know if you were ready to hear it or if you were trying to hear it. And even if you're not trying to hear it now, I get it because I didn't do right. But I'm human. People fuck up and it's up to us when we fuck up to own it, man. And use that as a stepping stone to be better, to never make that mistake again. And it seemed like he heard me out. He didn't have much to say, but he at least heard me out. And I at least wanted to kick that to him before we parted ways out of this apartment. Um, you know, as far as like beating my ass and all of that, that's that's never going to happen. Um, I mean, there, there's that. Uh, and it, because I've learned my lesson, nothing is going to happen. Nothing was going to happen regardless because I, I felt a certain way the next day after I went off on everybody. I was just frustrated. And in hindsight, it was me lashing out uh, from dealing with bitch ass. And it was like guilty by association because he brought you in here. I thought maybe, I don't know. You had some shenanigans up your sleeve too. And that wasn't fair to tough guy, Tonio. Bitch ass, that's a whole nother story. But about bitch ass, I have to learn to let go. Yes, he did wrong by me. He would take my rent money and not give it to the leasing office. He would give it to himself. He would feast off of my rent money, put gas in his car with my rent money, fly a bitch from New Jersey to Atlanta with my rent money. And yeah, I think any working person would be pissed, fumigated, fumigating. But I have to let go. 
he said he's sorry. But me, in my head, I'm thinking, man, you ain't learned your lesson. But that's beside the point. I can't control that. Maybe he did, maybe he didn't. Maybe he's going to do some more fuck shit. That's way worse than this. But on my end, I have to let that shit go because it's not a reflection of me. The fact that I'm holding it on and just letting that be a driving force in the way I interact with him, I can control that. And that does reflect on me. And it just, it it saps your energy. That energy can be reserved for other things, positive things. I was arboring feelings of hatred, animosity towards this person who shares the same living space as me. And that wasn't fair or healthy, mentally or physically. Every time I came out that room, I was ready for some shit on some wishing nigga would mentality. And I have to learn how to let pieces fall where they may. So things are better between me, bitch ass, and tough guy, Tonio. Uh, And I I like it to remain that way for the next, I don't know how many days, uh, close to half a month we got. Speaking of roommates, Netflix just released a miniseries titled Worst Roommate. And I think it was about five episodes. And the last episode is a two-parter. And I watched all of them in one day. Pretty gruesome. Different stories from different eras. uh, Some that go back uh, into the 80s. Some in the 90s, 2000s, up to current. And if you have Netflix or if you got a sneaky link, I highly recommend Worst Roommate. Something else that has caught my attention on Netflix is genius. It's the documentary on the life and times of the great, the one and only Kanye West. Now I've talked about this man from time to time, sometimes in a not so positive light. However, I've come around the corner and he's a complicated man. Uh, If it wasn't for Kanye, I don't know what the landscape of hip-hop would be right now. Yes, he's that important. He's that relevant to not just hip-hop, but to music and pop culture in general. Uh, From his hip-hop, his albums, uh, from his various uh, public blow-ups, the Taylor Swift shit, the George Bush shit, and then, of course, fashion, the Kim Kardashian shit, the paparazzi shit there's a lot of ground to cover and it was directed by cootie the the same person who directed his through the wire video his, his debut music video uh he's also from chicago he was a budding comedian and he knew yay from around the way just being from chicago and it's a three-part series and i mean obviously there's more that could be added uh, as the years go on but they left it at modern day up to current time and um what a remarkable story the ups and downs the trials and tribulations of the one kanye west and i mean they, they showed intimate videos with him and his mother uh i mean it just 
it gives you the feels. It gives you the feels and shows how important and how tight of a bond they had. That was his ace. That was his first fan, his first big fan. Like a lot of artists, whether you're doing painting or working with oils or you're a musician or rapper, your, your biggest supporter when you first start out a lot of times is your mom. And I can relate. I don't know what it's going to be like when I lose my mother. I hate to think about it. I know that's how life works. There's a beginning and there's an end. That's how all stories go. Um, but the fashion and how he lost her, they had just talked and had plans of doing things for nonprofit organizations back home. They had big plans to work with each other and to just lose her suddenly. Um, <clears throat> and a lot of people say that's the bane of the old Kanye's existence. It makes sense. Does that give him a right to say and do the things and make him irresponsible? No, he's a grown human being. However, you have to consider the circumstance because after he lost his mom, it was just pieces were chipping away. Pieces were chipping away. But yeah, I mean, you don't even need to be a fan of Kanye West, a fan of hip hop, if you just like interesting stories. And the man has an interesting story, by all accounts. Check out Genius on Netflix. Now, I've also felt the mission Fresh Prince, the reboot, available on Peacock. And when people talk about reboots of classic shows or classic movies, instantly, you cringe. However, because it's Fresh Prince, and I'm such a big fan of the original, and the fact that Will Smith co-signed on it, I'm like, alright, I gotta hear it out. I watched episode one, episode one, Vivian, episode one, and I was hooked. There are about six episodes in, uh, and it's uh, dramatic, non, not, not comedic like the original. It's more of a dramatic retelling of the story. The guy who plays Carlton, he's doing cocaine. Hillary still fine as fuck, but she chocolate. Ashley is a... Uh, uh, teenage uh, scissor sister down for the lickety split you know that was bound to happen well, my favorite character on the show is Jeffrey uh, I, I don't know if he's British or if he's Jamaican but he calls shots he calls shots and he makes shit happen so check out Fresh Prince on Peacock it's probably the best thing on TV that's not Snowfall uh, by the way, Snowfall's back, and I believe they're about four episodes in. Man, FX, they get it. They know how to TV. Speaking of FX, Atlanta is finally coming back at the end of this month. March 24th, mark it on your calendar. After a long hiatus, the, the band is back. The band is back. So enjoy it while you can, because we don't know if we're going to get a following season anytime soon. You know how Donald Glover works. He's all over the place. And while I'm on the Atlanta tip, uh, Lakeith Stanfield, he went viral for sharing a, a picture of him wearing women's clothing. And his reasoning behind it 
behind this decision is that uh, it reflects some certain culture in Europe. And it, when people say that, I'm like, okay, great. Especially when you're a black man trying to cherish some uh, rite of passage or some cultural shit in Europe. Like, that right there already has me feeling a certain way. And the overarching thing I have with this motherfucker you in america that's great that's cool you want to wear kilts and shit but motherfucker this ain't scotland but i digress lakeith stanfield is one of my favorite current black actors just the the extracurricular i just hard pass not buying now kane velasquez he was arrested for attempted murder now, apparently uh, there was rumors that uh, someone tried to molest one of his uh, young relatives and he pursued the person's truck or pursued the person's car and he shot at the car but he missed the suspected rapist and, and shot the guy's dad instead so he's going to be locked up and a lot of people are saying free cane free cane uh that fucker deserves it and it's been confirmed that the guy was diddling children and i agree people like that should get justice instant justice like Ving said in Pulp Fiction, medieval. Medieval on the ass. And that's just not how the justice system works. Unfortunately, and especially because he hit the wrong person. You can't take matters into your own hands. However, George Zimmerman, huh, but you know what, never mind. That's a whole other can of worms. Now, John Morant, I've said this before, I'll say it again, is doing amazing things. Just last week, there was a buzzer beater he made. His his teammate throws a Grant Hill-esque pass across the court. He catches it as he's approaching the out-of-bounds line. And just as the clock is ticking, hits a swish. As he's going out-of-bounds, catching a long half-court pass and hits a swish. Mid-air. Fucking fantastic. MVP him. MVP him. However, I don't think he's going to get it. He should get it. But DeMar DeRozan over there in Chi-Town is also doing amazing things. He's found somewhat of a resurgence over there in the Windy City. And uh, although he's in my, my Cavs division with the Bulls, I, I mean, I can't hate on it too hard. And, and by the way, my Cavs, the, the Cavs look like they're calving again. They, they've been slumping. They, they've missed uh, Darius Garland, their all-star point guard. He came back, and they're still losing games. But I think we're currently fifth. Fifth in the conference, uh, whereas before he went out, we were third. We were about three games behind first. But uh, I'm just glad to see these guys are going into the playoffs uh, how far they'll go, I don't know. But they need this as a stepping stone. Just just make it to the dance and see what pieces are missing. Obviously, we've missed Colin Sexton just about the whole season. And, um, you know, hopefully when he comes back next season, we'll kick shit into higher gear. Go Cavs, go Ohio. Now, as far as Bron and company, LeBron Anthony, well, it's not even Anthony anymore. LeBron Lakers, uh, GM slash point guard, small forward, center, all of that, and most of the time coach, LeBron, 
he's got to stop doing these uh, ominous responses in the in the press game, in the press conferences. Talking about, man, for you to get rid of me, you got to bury me 12 feet deep. Well, that's what the Clippers have done. They basically swept the Lakers. Fuck, they, they, they have swept the Lakers this whole season. With or without Kawhi. Without, with or without Paul George. Don't matter. And this is supposed to be the Lakers city. I can't tell. People are talking about playing game. Playing game? Psh, man. We shall see. Now on Friday, the baby and NBA Youngboy released their joint album, Better Than You. And I didn't care for it. I glossed over it. I skipped some songs. I skipped throughout the whole album. I didn't even listen to each song. But, you know, I, there's some tracks here and there that I fucked with from the baby. And the baby's actually talented. You see some of his freestyles. Uh, you, he, he's got it. But matching that up with NBA young boy and that and that young uh, new millennial energy, I, I think there's probably a few tracks of NBA young boy. I fuck, but and when I saw this was coming out, I was like, yeah, hard pass. But King Von uh, posthumously had an album released on that same day called "What It Means to Be King," and I knew nothing about King Von before he died. I know more about his murder than his actual music couldn't tell you one track i did see the 21 savage was featured on one of the songs and even that song i didn't even add in my playlist usually i see 21 guests featured on a song and i'm like oh automatic but even with this i just <sighs> king vaughn is what they call a drill rapper from chicago it's popular over there that's what they do they drill uh, and they rap they drill rap and it's not my cup it's not just like what people say about mumble rap i i pick and choose there there's some tracks that i fuck with with drill rap uh but yeah man king vaughn obviously had a huge following r.i.p but i did fuck with smoke Diz's latest album diplomatic immunity it's eight songs 22 minutes and 55 seconds uh episode of martin is longer than this album but Smoke Dizza has become one of my favorite current artists. Before I even listened to the album, I just added the album to my playlist, just like I did with Conway the Machine. He is from New York, and he is a dope MC, full of pop cultural references, especially the wrestling references. And when MCs reference wrestling, oh my God, I am all ears. No big ear jokes, y'all. But all things, March 6th, 1981, Walter Cronkite signs off as anchorman of CBS Evening News. In 1987, the film Angel Heart premiered in theaters. It starred Robert De Niro, Lisa Bonet, and Mickey Rourke. Mickey Rourke, before he looked like a pumpkin's ass. And because of Angel Heart, Bill Cosby took issue to that because as we all know, Denise Huxville played one of his daughters on The Cosby Show. And, and Bill Cosby dismissed Angel Heart as a movie made by white America that cast a black girl, gave her voodoo things to do and have sex. Well, Bill, would you prefer if they slipped something in her drink? <sighs> Too soon? Also in 87, Lethal Weapon premiered in theaters starring Danny Glover and that racist ass Mel Gibson. Fuck you, racist-ass Mel Gibson. In 1992, Gladiator. No, nah, not that Gladiator. This Gladiator had Cuba, Cuba Gooding Jr. in it. 
and uh, that premiered in theaters as well as The Lawnmower Man and Meatballs 4 starring Bill Murray. In 1993, Whitney Houston's single I Will Always Love You posted its 14th week at number one in the US. In 1995, on an episode of The Jenny Jones Show entitled Same Sex Crushes, Scott Amager reveals a crush on his heterosexual friend Jonathan Schmitz. Schmitz will kill Amager several days after the show airs in syndication. Yeah, the 90s man, crazy times. Also, on that same day in 95, Deborah Norville begins assuming her duties as host of Inside Edition, where she still is today. In 1998, U.S. Marshals premiered in theaters, starring Tommy Lee Jones. In 1999, a 67-year-old George Jones is seriously injured in a car accident while on his way home. Jones' Lexus crashed into a bridge at about 1.30. It is later revealed that alcohol was a factor in the accident. In the year 2000, Foxy Brown is injured in a car accident in Brooklyn, in which her car hit a fence. Police discover that Brown was driving with a suspended driver license and order her to appear in court in April. Brown's license was suspended for failing to appear in court for a parking violation. And on that same day in 2000, the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame inducts Eric Clapton, Earth, Wind & Fire, Love & Spoonful, The Moon Glows, Bonnie Raitt, James Taylor, Nat King Cole, Billie Holiday, Hal Blaine, King Curtis, James Jamerson, Scotty Moore, Earl Palmer, and Clive Davis. In 2001, Eve released her album, Scorpion. And on that same day, Teen Nick first airs as a Sunday Night Block. In 2007, Seven Dust released their album, Alpha. In 2009, The Watchmen premiered in theaters. In 2015, Chappie premiered in theaters. In 2019, in a fiery interview with Gayle King on the CBS This Morning, singer R. Kelly vehemently denies that he sexually abused women, the allegations for which he faces criminal charges. King was commended on social media for remaining stoic, while Kelly at one point got up out of his chair and began to scream and pound his chest. It wouldn't have done any good if we both got hysterical, King told co-host Nora O'Donnell. Most of the 80-minute long interview would subsequently be aired in the full in a primetime special on March 8th. And on that same day, just one day after Jeopardy completed airing its first All-Star Games event to commemorate its 35th anniversary, host Alex Trebek announces across the show's social media platforms that he has been diagnosed with stage 4 pancreatic cancer to announce the news on his own terms. Acknowledging that his long-term prognosis is extremely poor, Trebek says he intends on honoring his recently signed contract to host the series until the end of the 21-22 season for as long as he is able. R.I.P. Alex. However, what we're going to be talking about later is that in 1998, on the same day U.S. Marshals premiered in theaters, The Big Lebowski premiered in theaters. And what a cultural, iconic movie. I mean, they have an annual fest inspired by this movie. There's a whole religion based on this movie, Dudism, or as some call it, the Church of Latter Dude Saints eccentric characters iconic soundtrack uh, it's one of my favorite Coen Brothers films it's either that or Fargo for me so yeah man the dude Today in sports history, in 1919, the Montreal Canadiens win the NHL championship after they beat the Ottawa Senators three games to one with one tie. In 1922, Babe Ruth signs a three-year contract with the New York Yankees at $52,000 a year. 
1945, George Nissen of Cedar Rapids, Iowa, receives a patent for the first modern trampoline. In 1964, boxing legend Cassius Clay joins the Nation of Islam and changes his name to Muhammad Ali, calling his former title a slave name. But in 1967, Muhammad Ali is ordered by Selective Service to be inducted. On the same day, just three years later, in 1972, Jack Nicklaus passes Arnold Palmer as golf's all-time money winner. In 1982, San Antonio Spurs beat the Milwaukee Bucks 171-166 to in triple overtime in what would be NBA's highest scoring game ever. In 1985, Enos Slaughter and Archie Vaughn are elected to the Baseball Hall of Fame. In 1985, future undisputed world heavyweight boxing champion Mike Tyson KOs Hector Mercedes at 1 minute and 47 seconds in round one of four in Albany, New York in his first professional fight. In 1992, Yankee pitcher Pascual Perez is suspended for one year due to cocaine. And in 2019, LeBron James scores his 32,293rd point in the second quarter of a Lakers 115-99 loss to Denver to pass Michael Jordan into fourth place on the NBA all-time point scoring list. And that was my half-assed sports report. Coming up, I'm going to discuss the film The Big Lebowski as it premiered in theaters on this day in 1998. We'll be black after these messages. Hey, on your fucking rug! Am I wrong? No. Am I wrong? Yeah, but... Okay, then. Mm. I think I hear them shooting. They treat me like I'm half mutant. I redesign internal work is a revolution. Noise polluting. Religious zealots, Hail Mary's hallelujahs I'm crafted to be callous, no laughter for your malice They wanna catch me sleeping like we're Hampton on a mattress A walking target practice, Black Lives Matter I'm on a stairway to heaven reaching for a ladder Public enemy number one, under the sun I was born coming out of the womb, under a gun Elephant in the middle taking up all the room Couldn't walk down the street for the Ignored. Is it not clear something's wrong? They lock their tip open doors. All we need is a window. 
symphony of injustice about to reach his crescendo. Remember Freddie Gray, Tamir Rice, Eric Garner, Jordan Baker, Austin Sterling, Tears Crunching, many lives destroyed by hatred. Light a candle for Philando, cops bust shots like Rambo. Who ain't gonna stand up, bust back, got fed up, say fuck that. Special mention to those no longer with us. Last Wednesday, we lost American professional football player Shane Olivier. Born on October 7, 1981, in Cedarhurst, New York, he was an offensive tackle in the National Football League. He was drafted by the San Diego Chargers in the seventh round of the 2004 NFL Draft. He played college football at Ohio State. Olivier was also a member of the New York Giants, as well as the Florida Tuskers and Virginia Destroyers, the United Football League. Olivier died on March 2, 2022, at the age of 40. On that same day, we lost American film industry executive and producer Alan Ladd Jr. 
born Alan Walbridge Ladd Jr. on October 22, 1937 in Los Angeles, California. He served as president of 20th Century Fox from 1976 to 1979, during which he approved the production of Star Wars. He later established the Ladd Company and headed MGM UA. Ladd won an Academy Award for Best Picture in 1996 for producing Braveheart. Ladd died on March 2, 2022 at his home in Los Angeles. He was 84 and had suffered from kidney failure. Also on Wednesday, we lost American actor and singer Johnny Brown. Born John Brown on June 11, 1937 in St. Petersburg, Florida, he was most famous for his role as building superintendent Nathan Bookman on the 1970s CBS sitcom Good Times. Brown portrayed Bookman until the series was canceled in 1979. Brown died in Los Angeles on March 2, 2022 at the age of 84. He collapsed shortly after leaving a doctor's appointment for his pacemaker and was pronounced dead when brought to the hospital. Mary Wilson was an American singer. Born on March 6, 1944 in Greenville, Mississippi, she gained worldwide recognition as a founding member of the Supremes, the most successful Motown act of the 1960s and the best charting female group in US chart history, as well as one of the best-selling girl groups of all time. The trio reached number one on Billboard's Hot 100 with 12 of their singles, 10 of which feature Wilson on backing vocals. Wilson remained with the group following the departures of the other three original members, Barbara Martin, Florence Ballard, and Diana Ross, though the subsequent group disbanded following Wilson's own departure in 1977. Wilson later became a New York Times bestselling author in 1986 with the release of her first autobiography, Dream Girl, My Life as a Supreme, which set records for sales in its genre and later for the autobiography, Supreme Faith, Someday We'll Be Together. Continuing a successful career as a concert performer in Las Vegas, Wilson also worked in activism, fighting to pass truth in music advertising bills and donating to various charities. Wilson was inducted along with Ross and Ballard as members of the Supremes into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame in 1988. On February 8, 2021, Wilson died in her sleep from hypertensive cardiovascular disease at her home in Henderson, Nevada, a suburb of Las Vegas, at the age of 76. Two days before her death, she had announced on YouTube that she was planning to release new solo material with Universal Music Group and hoped it would come out before March 6, her birthday. Motown founder Barry Gordy said he was extremely shocked and saddened by the news of her death and said Wilson was quite a star in her own right and over the years continued to work hard to boost the legacy of the Supremes. Diana Ross reflected on Wilson's death, posting on Twitter, I am reminded that each day is a gift. I have so many wonderful memories of our time together. The Supremes will live on in our hearts. Willie Stargell was an American professional baseball left fielder and first baseman. Born Wilver Dornell Stargell on March 6, 1940 in Earlsboro, Oklahoma, he spent all of his 21 seasons in Major League Baseball from 1962 to 1982 with the Pittsburgh Pirates. Among the most feared power hitters in baseball history, Stargell had the most home runs with 296, more than any player in the 1970s decade, many of the tape measure variety. During his career, he batted 282 with 2,232 hits, 1,194 runs, 423 doubles, 475 home runs, and 1,540 runs batted in, helping his team win six National League East Division titles, two NL pennants, and two World Series championships in 1971 and 1979, both over the Baltimore Orioles. 
Stargell was a seven-time All-Star and two-time NL home run leader. In 1979, he became the first and currently only player to win the NL Most Valuable Player Award, the NL Championship Series MVP Award, and the World Series MVP Award in one season. In 1982, the Pirates retired his uniform number eight, and he was inducted into the Baseball Hall of Fame in 1988. After years of suffering from a kidney disorder, he died of complications related to a stroke in Wilmington, North Carolina on April 9, 2001. In his later life, Stardrow had also suffered from hypertension and heart failure. A segment of Stardrow's bowel was removed more than two years before he died. He had been in the hospital recovering from a gallbladder surgery at the time of his death. On April 7, 2001, two days before Stardrow died, a larger-than-life statue of him was unveiled at the Pirates' new stadium, PNC Park, as part of the opening day ceremonies. As his death occurred on the same day as the official opening of the stadium against the Reds, the statue served as a de facto memorial for Stargell. Ed McMahon was an American announcer, game show host, comedian, actor, singer, and combat aviator. Born Edward Leo Peter McMahon Jr. on March 6, 1923 in Detroit, Michigan, he would begin his association with Johnny Carson in their first TV series, the ABC game show Who Do You Trust, running from 1957 to 1962. McMahon then made his famous 30-year mark as Carson's sidekick, announcer, and second banana on NBC's The Tonight Show, starring Johnny Carson from 1962 to 1992. McMahon also hosted the original Star Search from 1983 to 1995, co-hosted TV's bloopers and practical jokes with Dick Clark from 1982 to 1998, presented sweepstakes for the direct marketing company American Family Publishers, annually co-hosted the Jerry Lewis MDA Telethon from 1973 to 2008, and anchored the team of NBC personalities, conducting the network's coverage of the Macy's Thanksgiving Day Parade during the 1970s and 1980s. McMahon appeared in several films, including The Incident, Fun with Dick and Jane, Full Moon High, and Butterfly, as well as briefly in the film version of the TV sitcom Bewitched, and has also performed in numerous television commercials. According to Entertainment Weekly, McMahon is considered one of the greatest sidekicks of all time. McMahon died on June 23, 2009, shortly after midnight at the Ronald Reagan UCLA Medical Center in Los Angeles, California. He was 86 years old. His nurse, Julie Cohn, stated he went peacefully. No formal cause of death was given, but McMahon's publicist attributed his death to the many health problems he had suffered over his final months. McMahon had said that he still suffered from the injury to his neck in March of 2007. Rest easy, y'all. On this day in 1998, The Big Lebowski premiered in theaters. The Big Lebowski is a 1998 black comedy crime film, written, produced, and directed by Joel and Ethan Cohen. It stars Jeff Bridges as Jeffrey the Dude Lebowski, a Los Angeles slacker and avid bowler. He is assaulted as a result of mistaken identity, then learns that a millionaire, also named Jeffrey Lebowski, played by David Huddleston, was the intended victim. The millionaire Lebowski's trophy wife is kidnapped, and he commissions the dude to deliver the ransom to secure her release. The plan goes awry when the dude's friend Walter Sobchak, played by John Goodman, schemes to keep the ransom money. Sam Elliott, Julianne Moore, Steve Buscemi, John Turturro, Philip Seymour Hoffman, Tara Reid, David Thewlis, Peter Stormare, and Ben Gazzara also appear in supporting roles.
The film is loosely inspired by the work of Raymond Chandler. Joel Cohen stated, We wanted to do a Chandler kind of story, how it moves episodically, and deals with the characters trying to unravel a mystery, as well as having a hopelessly complex plot that's ultimately unimportant. The original score was composed by Carter Burwell, a longtime collaborator of the Cohen brothers. The Big Lebowski received mixed reviews at the time of its release. Over time, reviews have become largely positive, and the film has become a cult favorite, noted for its eccentric characters, comedic dream sequences, idiosyncratic dialogue, and eclectic soundtrack. In 2014, the film was selected for preservation in the United States National Film Registry by the Library of Congress, being deemed culturally, historically, or aesthetically significant. A spin-off titled The Jesus Rose was released in 2020, with Turturro reprising his role and also serving as writer and director. You got the wrong guy. I'm the dude, man. In the early 1990s, Los Angeles slacker Jeffrey the Dude Lebowski is assaulted in his home by two enforcers for porn kingpin Jackie Treehorn, who is owed money by the wife of a different Jeffrey Lebowski. One of the goons urinates on the dude's favorite rug before they realize they have the wrong man and leave. Advised by his bowling partners, Vietnam veteran Walter Sobchak and Donnie Karabatsos, the dude visits wealthy philanthropist Jeffrey Big Lebowski, demanding compensation for the rug. Big refuses, but the dude tricks Big's assistant, Brant, into letting him take a similar rug for the mansion. Outside, he meets Bunny, Big's trophy wife, and her German nihilist friend, Uli. Soon after this, Bunny is apparently kidnapped, and Big hires the dude to deliver the requested ransom money, $1 million. That night, a different pair of thugs accost the dude, taking his replacement rug on behalf of Big's daughter, Maud, who has sentimental attachment to it. The kidnappers arrange to collect the ransom. Convinced that Bunny kidnapped herself, Walter concocts a scheme to keep the ransom money by substituting it with a briefcase full of his dirty laundry. Although things do not go entirely according to Walter's plan, the kidnappers leave with Walter's laundry, and Walter and the dude return to the bowling alley, leaving the ransom money in the trunk of his car. While the bowlers bowl, the car is stolen from the parking lot. Revealing Bunny is one of Treehorn's actresses and lovers, Maud agrees that Bunny staged her own abduction, and asks for the dude's help to recover the money, which her father illegally withdrew from Family's Foundation. Later, the dude is separately confronted for his failure to deliver the ransom by both Big and the trio of German nihilists who identify themselves as the kidnappers. Maud is able to confirm that the Germans are Bunny's friends. The dude's car, minus the briefcase, is recovered by police. Driving home after a meeting with Maud, the dude finds homework stuffed down in the seat, signed by Larry Sellers. Walter and the dude confront Larry at his father's home, interrogating him about the missing briefcase. When he is unresponsive, Walter bashes a new sports car parked outside, thinking the teen had used the money to buy it. The car's actual owner, a neighbor, appears and retaliates by bashing the dude's car, mistaking it for Walter's. The dude returns home where he finds Maude wearing only a robe. They have sex and Maude tells the dude that her father has no money of his own. The family fortune belonged to her late mother, who left him none. The final piece of information which the dude needs to work out the entire scheme. After Bunny left town, her nihilist friends faked her kidnapping to extort money from her husband. Big withdrew the ransom from the family trust but kept it for himself, not caring what happened to his wife, giving the dude a briefcase containing phone books instead. In a final confrontation outside of the bowling alley, the nihilists set the dude's car on fire and demand the ransom money. Walter violently fends them off, but during the scuffle, Donnie dies from a heart attack 
before scattering Donnie's ashes from a cliff overhanging the Pacific Ocean, Walter delivers a eulogy that turns into a diatribe about the Vietnam War. He scatters the ashes, which an updraft blows back over himself and the dude. The dude chastises Walter for the eulogy, and Walter apologizes, and the two go bowling. The Dude is mostly inspired by Jeff Dowd, an American film producer and political activist the Coen brothers met while they were trying to find distribution for their first feature, Blood Simple. Dowd had been a member of the Seattle Seven, liked to drink white Russians, and was known as The Dude. The Dude was also partly based on a friend of the Coen brothers, Peter Exline, a Vietnam War veteran who reportedly lived in a dump of an apartment and was proud of a little rug that tied the room together. X-Line knew Barry Sonnenfeld from New York University, and Sonnenfeld introduced X-Line to the Coen brothers while they were trying to raise money for Blood Simple. X-Line became friends with the Coens and in 1989 told them all kinds of stories from his own life, including ones about his actor-writer friend Louis Abernathy, a fellow Vietnam vet who later became a private investigator and helped him track down and confront a high school kid who stole his car. As in the film, X-Line's car was impounded by the Los Angeles Police Department and Abernathy found an 8th grader's homework under the passenger seat. X-Line also belonged to an amateur softball league, but the Coens changed it to bowling in the film because it's a very social sport where you can sit around and drink and smoke while engaging in inane conversation. The Coens met filmmaker John Milius when they were in Los Angeles making Barton Fink and incorporated his love of guns and the military into the character of Walter. Before David Huddleston was cast as Big Jeffrey Lebowski, the Coens considered Robert Duvall, Anthony Hopkins, Gene Hackman, Norman Mailer, George C. Scott, Jerry Falwell, Gore Vidal, Andy Griffith, William F. Buckley, and Ernest Borgnine. The Coens' top choice was Marlon Brando, but he was unable to star in the film due to health issues. Charlize Theron was considered for the role of Bunny Lebowski. In casting the film, Joel remarked, we tend to write both for people we know and have worked with, in some parts without knowing who's going to play the role. In The Big Lebowski, we did write for John Goodman and Steve Buscemi, but we didn't know who was getting the Jeff Bridges role. Mel Gibson was originally considered for the role of the dude, but he didn't take the pitch too seriously. In preparation for his role, Bridges met Dowd, but actually drew on himself a lot from the 60s and 70s. I lived in a little place like that and did drugs, although I think I was a little more creative than the dude. The actor went into his own closet with the film's wardrobe person and picked out clothes that he had thought the dude might wear. He wore his character's clothes home because most of them were his own. The actor also adapted the same physicality as Dowd, including the slouching and his ample belly. Originally, Goodman wanted a different kind of beard for Walter, but the Coen brothers insisted on the gladiator, or what they called the chin strap, and he thought it would go well with this flat top haircut. The film grossed 5.5 million on its opening weekend, finishing up with a gross of 18 million in the United States, just above its 15 million budget. The film's worldwide gross outside of the US was 28.7 million, bringing its worldwide gross to 46.7 million. The Rotten Tomatoes website reads, typically stunning visuals and sharp dialogue from the Coen brothers, brought to life with strong performances from Goodman and Bridges. Many critics and audiences have likened the film to a modern western, while many others dispute this or liken it to a crime novel that revolves around mistaken identity plot devices. Peter Howell in his review for Toronto Star wrote, It's hard to believe that this is the work of a team that won an Oscar last year for the original screenplay of Fargo. There's a large amount of profanity in the movie, which seems a weak attempt to paper over dialogue gaps. 
Howell revised his opinion in a later review and in 2011 stated that it may just be my favorite Coen Brothers film. Todd McCarthy in Variety Magazine wrote, One of the film's indisputable triumphs is its soundtrack, which mixes Carter Burwell's original score with classic pop tunes and some fabulous covers. USA Today gave the film three out of four stars and felt that the dude was too passive a hero to sustain interest, but that there was enough startling brilliance here to suggest that, just like the dude, those smarty pants Coens will abide. In his review for the Washington Post, Dessen Howe praised the Coens and their inspired absurdist taste for weird peculiar Americana, but a sort of neo-Americana that is entirely invented. The Coens have defined and mastered their own bizarre subgenre. No one does it like them, and it almost goes without saying, no one does it better. Janet Maslin praised Bridges' performance in her review for the New York Times. Mr. Bridges finds a role so right for him that he seems never to have been anywhere else. Watch his performance to see Shambling executed with nonchalant grace and a seemingly out-to-lunch character played with fine comic flair. Andrew Saris, in his review for the New York Observer, wrote, The result is a lot of laughs and a feeling of awe toward the craftsmanship involved. I doubt that there will be anything else like it the rest of this year. In a five-star review for Empire Magazine, Ian Nathan wrote, For those who delight in the Coen's divinely abstract take on reality, this is pure nirvana, and in a perfect world, all movies would be made by the Coen brothers. Roger Ebert of the Chicago Sun-Times gave the film three stars out of four, describing it as weirdly engaging. In a 2010 review, he raised his original score to four stars out of four and added the film to his great movies list. However, Jonathan Rosenbaum wrote in the Chicago Reader, To be sure, The Big Lebowski is packed with show-offy filmmaking and as a result is pretty entertaining, but insofar as it represents a moral position and the Coen's relative styling of their figures invariably does, it's an elitist one, elevating salt-of-the-earth types like Bridges and Goodman over everyone else in the movie. David Kerr, in his review for the Daily News, criticized the film's premise as a tired idea, and it produces an episodic, unstrung film. The Guardian criticized the film as a bunch of ideas shoveled into a bag and allowed to spill out at random. The film is infuriating and will win no prizes, but it does have some terrific jokes. Since its original release, The Big Lebowski has become a cult classic. Ardent fans of the film call themselves achievers. Steve Palopoli wrote about the film's emerging cult status in July 2002. He first realized that the film had a cult following when he attended a midnight screening in 2000 at the New Beverly Cinema in Los Angeles and witnessed people quoting dialogue from the film to each other. Soon after the article appeared, the programmer for a local midnight film series in Santa Cruz decided to screen The Big Lebowski and on the first weekend they had to turn away several hundred people. The theater held the film over for six weeks, which had never happened before. An annual festival, Lebowski Fest, began in Louisville, Kentucky in 2002, with 150 fans showing up, and has since expanded to several other cities. The festival's main event each year is a night of unlimited bowling, with various contests including costume, trivia, and the hardest and farthest traveled contest. Held over a weekend, events typically include a pre-fest party with bands the night before the bowling event, as well as a day-long outdoor party with bands, vendor booths, and games. Various celebrities from the film have even attended some of the events, including Jeff Bridges, who attended the Los Angeles event. The British equivalent, inspired by Lebowski Fest, is known as the Dudes Abides and is held in London. Dudism, a religion devoted largely to spreading the philosophy and lifestyle of the film's main character, was founded in 2005. 
Also known as the Church of the Latter-day Dude, the organization has ordained over 220,000 Dudist priests all over the world via its website. Happy 24th anniversary, The Big Lebowski. Today's birthdays from March 6. Turning 28 today is American basketball player Marcus Smart. American keyboard player and producer Lex Luger turns 31 today, and we're not talking about the total package Lex Luger. The hip-hop producer Lex Luger. American wrestler and Ric Flair's son David Flair turns 43 today. American wrestler and actor Ken Anderson turns 46 today. Happy 48th birthday to American rapper Beanie Siegel, The Truth. American basketball player Greg Ostertag turns 49 today. Ah, remember that guy? Also turning 49 is American basketball player Michael Finley. Man, people used to say I looked like him in college. It was Michael Finley, R. Kelly, and LeBron James, uh, depending on who you ask. Happy 50th birthday to American basketball player, actor, and rapper, television personality, uh, pop cultural icon, the big Aristotle himself, Shaquille O'Neal. Turning 59 today is American actor, producer, screenwriter, one of the original kings of comedy, D.L. Hewley. Turning 75 is American actor, director, producer, and activist, Rob Reiner. Also turning 75 today is American actress, Anna Maria Horsford. She played D on Wayne Brothers, and also she played Ice Cube's mom, Craig's mom, on Friday. And turning 76 today is English singer, songwriter, and guitarist of the band Pink Floyd, David Gilmore. Shine on, you crazy diamond. So that wraps up another edition of Over the Culture Podcast. And I forgot to mention that Winning Time premieres on HBO Max tonight. Winning Time is a behind-the-scenes tell-all of the Showtime Lakers, the, the great Lakers dynasty of the 80s going into the 90s. Magic Johnson, Kareem, Pat Riley, Worthy, Kurt Rambis, Norm Nixon, all those guys winning championships and fucking horrors. Yeah, that airs tonight. So please check that out as well as our sister show happening in the 90s every Thursday with Matt G. Crush Gasm with Kendra on Wednesday. Don't worry, the movie with Amanda and Wade as well as B3F Podcast with Joey and Steven. All right, man, y'all be cool. Peace. Dude is not in. Leave a message after the beep. Take